May wisdom graciously meet us in our paths and rise to greet our every thought. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Canon Lisa Hines, Canon for Wellness and Care in the Diocese. I uh, apologize for my voice this morning. I have recovered from a cold, but have not recovered my voice. So if you want to hear the sermon, I encourage you to move up. If you don't want to hear the sermon, that's fine. Stay where you are. There'll be no hard feelings. It's summer, and it's too hot to think. Time to relax and enjoy a bit of beach reading, something entertaining with a happy ending. And what we have this morning in the Book of Kings, it is, is about as close to beach reading as we find in the Bible. The story of Naaman, commander of the army of Aram, now known as Syria. Of course, it's more than a beach read. It's a parable of the hazards of pride and power. As educated and affluent Christians and Americans, we stand to learn something from the tale of Naaman. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in the nation of Aram, there lived a great man and mighty warrior named Naaman. Naaman enjoys high favor with his king because he has led Aram to victory over Israel, resulting in the usual humiliations and payments of tribute by the losing nation. But for all of Naaman's stature and influence, he is helpless when it comes to ridding himself of his worst enemy, leprosy. Naaman's affliction probably isn't the devastating disease that we call leprosy or Hansen's disease, but it is a disfiguring skin ailment that makes him an object of pity, something that a proud man would find as painful as the illness itself. Even his wife's slave girl pities Naaman. The girl, an Israelite taken captive in a raid by the Arameans, tells Naaman's wife that there is an Israelite prophet in Samaria who can cure Naaman of his leprosy. Naaman's wife shares with him what the slave girl told her. In desperation, Naaman takes his bit of female gossip to the king of Aram and asks leave to go to Samaria. The king, happy to be of service to his nation's hero, gives Naaman permission to go. He also gives him a royal letter to grease the skids with the king of Israel. So Naaman travels with his entourage of servants to Samaria, where the king of Israel lives, and he presents the letter to the king, along with silver, gold, and fine garments. Not until Naaman gives the letter to the king of Israel do we learn what the letter says. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman that you may cure him of his leprosy. There's no mention of a prophet to broker the healing, just a note from one king to another with the implication that this is a matter between men of power and authority. Well, the king of Israel reads the letter and panics. What the king of Aram intends by the letter isn't clear, but if he means to reassure the king of Israel that Naaman comes in peace, he fails. Instead, the king of Israel receives the letter as a threat of further aggression from the king who has so recently defeated him. Am I God to give death or life? 
that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's picking a quarrel with me. Israel's king leaps to the conclusion that he has no resources other than his kingly self if Naaman's needs are going to be met. The extravagant gifts presented by Naaman only add to the king's stress because they obligate him to return the largesse by granting the king of Aram's request to cure him. But thank God for gossip. While the king is busy tearing his clothes, his servants and slaves are busy getting word to Elisha, the prophet in Samaria, whose reputation as a conduit for God's power was known to the slave girl in Naaman's household. Elisha quickly sends a message to the king of Israel that basically says, keep your clothes on, step aside, and let me handle this. Then comes my favorite part of the story, the part that lays bare the heart of Naaman and the heart of the matter. Naaman and his servants pull up in front of Elisha's hut in a cloud of dust and thundering of hooves and chariot wheels, a display of power meant to impress and even intimidate. Imagine the presidential limousine pulling up in a trailer park, surrounded by a motorcade of armed guards and secret service. Picture Naaman striking a pose on his chariot worthy of a coin as he waits for Elisha to appear. But Elisha does not appear. I like to think that Elisha leaves Naaman and his horses cooling their important heels in the front yard for a few minutes before sending his servant out to deliver Elisha's run-of-the-mill instructions for healing. Go wash seven times in the Jordan River, and you will be clean. Well, it's all too much for Naaman. He feels the fool. His humility has already been stretched to the limit. He's followed the advice of a lowly slave girl and of his wife, a mere woman. He swallowed his pride to ask his king's permission to seek a cure for his shameful affliction. He sought the help of the king of the army he defeated, only now to be treated without ceremony by a small town prophet in Samaria. Naaman turns away in anger to return to Aram fuming over the slight. I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Then he rails against the thought of washing in the Jordan when he can wash in the superior rivers of Damascus. Most, if not all, of us here are people of importance in our communities, respected by others, and holding positions of influence and responsibility. All of us are citizens of an important and powerful nation that trusts in its strength and ability to accomplish its goals through the exercise of power. When things happen that threaten our personal or national well-being, like economic difficulties, a catastrophic natural disaster, an enemy attack, or even just the stress of social change, we can find ourselves behaving a lot like the characters in this story. 
Sometimes we react to a problem by issuing a meaningless order to other people in power, like the king of Aram did to the king of Israel. Sometimes we tear our clothes like the king of Israel, convinced that if we can't solve a problem with our usual array of forces, all is lost. Sometimes, like Naaman, we rage against the failure of others to live up to our expectations and fantasies. In short, we tend to think that if a problem is to be solved, it will be through the force of our will and according to our specifications. But this story reminds us that it's the ones who aren't in control, the ones who don't suffer delusions about their own power, who may see most clearly where our help can be found, where true power lies. It reminds us to put aside our self-importance, to listen to the people on the edges of power, as Naaman's wife listens to her slave, as Naaman listens to his wife, as the king of Israel listens to Elijah's message to send Naaman his way, and as Naaman listens to his servant in Elisha's front yard after he is told to wash in the Jordan. It's the people on the edge of power who have learned to trust in God's power instead of their own. If we miss that message this morning in the book of Kings, then listen to Jesus in Luke's gospel when he tells his disciples to go out into the world without a purse or bag or sandals. Listen to Paul who warns that if we who are nothing think we are something, then we deceive ourselves. The story of Naaman reminds us that humility just may save us. It's not a bad message for a week in which we give thanks for our great nation and celebrate what America has accomplished, the freedom it enjoys, and the opportunities it offers. As Christians, we can serve our country both by praying that our leaders have the humility to listen to the powerless and to look beyond themselves for solutions, and by being a people who practice what we pray. Amen. <laughs>